Hey everyone, this is Jordan Van Trump, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. Just wanted to let everyone know this podcast is sponsored by the company I started right out of college called AgSwag. I'm sure like many of the other disruptors on this podcast, I started this company searching for cooler stuff and better service. One of my first tasks when I got out of college was finding some cool hats for my dad's business, as my family and their friends always struggled to source quality swag throughout the years. I started this company only making a few hats and have been fortunate enough to meet some of the top business leaders in the ag industry along the way. I've worked with some of the biggest disruptors currently in the space, such as FBN, Benson Hill, Pivot Bio, Pattern Ag, Holganics, as well as many veterans such as Cargill, Nutrien, Dairy Farmers of America, Kent Corp, CGB, Helena, and the list goes on and on. Throughout this journey of providing swag to various companies in agriculture, I've had the opportunity to learn some of the best business lessons, hacks, marketing strategies, and many other things to take my company to scale and become more successful throughout the years. My intentions of this series is to bring on guests that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years to tell their story and hopefully help you build your business in the future. Hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. Uh, we got a lot of great feedback on our last episode, but today we got Joe Nichols on the uh, podcast. He has uh, got a farm called Seven Springs Farms out of KD's, Kentucky. He is a first-generation farmer. He currently farms over 25,000 acres. He's got about 15 full or 50 full-time employees. He currently farms corn, wheat, barley, soybeans, tobacco, and he's got some cattle as well um, on top of the farm. He has a crushed rock sales business, crop insurance business, and he also does a lot with uh, erosion control blankets. So uh, with that, I'd like to welcome Joe to the show. Glad to be here. Glad for the invitation. Yep, well, glad to have you. So uh, I guess let's just get started with uh, how you got into farming and how all this started. I think uh, from what I've seen online doing some research, your, your parents were farmers and went out of business in the 80s. Is that right? That'd be correct. They sold out. I graduated in May of 83, 1983 from high school, and they sold out shortly after. And they took off and started loading up their vehicle and U-Haul and went to 365 miles away. We're moving to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And when they come, when they rounded the corner and they said, why aren't you packing? And I said, I'm not leaving. I was just graduated high school and I made that choice and I was working for a hog operation uh, part-time, then a, a gas station attendant part-time, uh, paying, the, starting to figure out how to pay my bills and how to survive. And it's been 365 days a year, 30 years ago, survival business. So, you know, they decided to leave and get a new start on life. And I just, I wouldn't, was it a premeditated plan? No, I'm just doing what teenagers do. They don't like they don't like to restart things. So I started my whole career then, uh, continued to work at the hog operation, making a bonus and incentive if I could get over 10 pigs per litter average. So it gave me the fundamentals uh, quite a bit. And then I went from a gas station to working for a local John Deere dealer. If you remember in the 80s, not only was it tough on farmers, it was tough on equipment dealerships. So my local John Deere dealer, Robinson Implement Company, I went to work for them. They gave me a job in cleaning out fence rows. Oh, 67 Chevrolet truck, a chainsaw and an axe, cleaning out fence rows. And I, uh, I passed the test and probably about 86, somewhere in that 85, 86, uh, Mr. Robinson's son, Joe Robinson, went to an auction one fall and bought a 4020 with a clutch out, engine out, transmission top shaft out. And he said, I'm gonna teach you how to mechanic. And I worked on that all winter. And that's how I learned, uh, learned mechanic work from him and the seasoned technicians he had around him. They just, I was willing to help them do anything. You know, if they needed somebody to crawl in a hard spot, the older guys, I would go in and help them stay on the weekends, help them. And I earned their respect. Therefore, as they was uh, going through their normal days, if I had a question, they would always answer my questions. And that's what allowed me to become a very good top shelf mechanic. So stayed with uh, that for several years, Mr. Robinson. Uh, 1992, ended up opening up my own repair shop. Uh, built a 48 by 56 foot building. Kept my parts in it. Worked on mostly John Deere equipment. 
had a very good, had a very good repair business with John Deere equipment and a lot of good loyal customers. Never would lie to them. I'd always play it straight. If I couldn't get it done on time, I'd tell them. And that's for, that was probably the foundation, uh, the big, the big portion of the foundation that I was able to grow this business. Because if you're a mechanic, you can find a salesman any day on the farm. You can go to any store and find a parts guy on the farm. When you need a repair guy, you need him and you need him loyal to you. And if uh, customers learn, they'll, they'll switch salesmen, they'll switch parts guys. They don't like to switch their, their technicians or repair guys that are willing to stay out in the middle of the night to get them going. So I, I had a good customer base. And then I was offered probably an opportunity of a lifetime. If, if I had to see it, over, see it over again, it was probably the one of the greatest opportunities I ever had. I was so naive that Mr. Robinson then was the oldest John Deere dealership in the state of Kentucky. And then uh, they were going out of business because Mr. Robinson was in bad health and his son didn't want to continue it. He really enjoyed farming. And it was tough. It was, it, they've been through some tough years and well financially established, good operation. Uh, I walked into a John Deere dealership one Saturday morning right before, thanks, uh, yeah, right before Thanksgiving. And uh, Mr. Dan Hudson, who I don't, you're familiar with Murray State University, the it's the Hudson Dan C. Hudson School of Agriculture now. So he he changed people's lives. And I walked in that Saturday morning to Hudson Ag Equipment. They had one dealership then in Mayfield, Kentucky. And his his key operations manager, general manager, was Bobby Boggs, who was sitting there. Uh, and I went to the parts counter to get my parts to be ready to go to work next the next week. And I asked, just naive stupidity. Just I look back how naive I was. I asked the competition, who would a person get a hold of in John Deere about inquiring about buying the John Deere dealership? And the parts manager happened to be there that Saturday morning, took me and introduced me to Bobby Boggus. And he said, here's a gentleman you probably want to talk to. because I've been doing a lot of business with him. And uh, Bobby looked at me said, uh, I don't know what your schedule is. You got, you got just a second. He turned around, picked up his phone. He called Dan. said, Dan, I've got a young man I think you need to meet. And uh, Dan said, well, I'm on, I'm on a – Dan flew his own planes. He was on the go all the time. They had – they was big in Hudson Fertilizer, uh, seed, chemicals, started in the John Deere dealership, based out of Murray, Kentucky, was his office. And uh, – Dan said, only time I've got this, only time I'll be available, and I hate to do it to the young man, but it'd be Thanksgiving morning. And uh, Bobby turned around to me and said, Joe, I'm sorry to say, the only time he meets with you Thanksgiving morning. I said, the only thing I'm going to miss that morning is a duck hunting trip. This seems like it might be more important. So met with Dan on Thanksgiving morning of 1994 and sat down with him for about me, Bobby, and Dan, and uh, sat down with him probably 30, 45 minutes. He said, well, I want to play straight with you. He said, Deere and Company has inquired with us about adding the Hudson store in Princeton to John Robinson's as our second store. And he said, I don't know you very, very well. You come highly recommended by the people that's interacted with you. And Dan said, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I'll buy all your parts and inventory. I'll stand behind every all the work you've done and given people warranties on. I'll buy all your special tools and I'll, you take Princeton, you go run it and I'll, you run it just as you would yourself and I'll give you 10% of the profits. That was his second store. And I said, well, okay, we got a deal. Stood up, shook his hand. We never had a signed contract. We shook hands. I walked out, got a call about three weeks later, two weeks later. He said, I've got you a brand new pickup sitting at Taylor Chevrolet in Murray went by and got that pickup. And between then I was shutting down my repair business because Mr. Robinson was gonna have a sale. We were supposed to take over uh, January 2nd. Well, I went in earlier trying to acclimate myself. There had been a little friction between the Robinsons because you know I was 12, 10, 12 miles from them uh, and I had my own repair business and that was that just, just normal competition. So I worked with Mr. Robinson. He stayed in his office till he got totally finished. I had more respect for those two individuals, Joe Robinson and Bill Robinson. Uh, it was 
the honor to let him see his finish his career out me up work beside him for probably 30 days till he got through his auction uh helped him in any way we could i took over basically january the second we didn't have a computer all we had was deer system which wasn't a windows computer you got it you roll back to 1995 in january that's just when electronics were really taking off everything was like on a beta type system so here i was uh i sat down didn't have no chart of accounts there wasn't no farm plan it was handwritten tickets so i in the repair business i knew who to trust and who not to trust so i, I would let people charge start building up her then dan acclimated the whole system into farm plan computers and i can truly say I stayed with Dan from 1994 to uh, finished up in 95, first week in January of 96, I went to see Dan. It was right around Christmas, I went to see him in 95 and told Dan I decided to farm, I wanted to farm full time. Well, Dan thought I was coming to ask for a job to manage all the dealerships. By then we had added four dealerships, uh, Morgan Field and Russellville. And I said, no, Dan, I'm not coming down here looking for a promotion. If I can make you millions, I feel like I can make myself millions. And he said, Joe, I've spent my whole life with people walking in here and at me and telling me they can do what they can do on their own without me. And I knew all the time they never could. You're one individual that I've got no doubt, my full belief, you can accomplish whatever you set your goals to. He said, I asked you one last question, one last favor. The day you get bored, make me your first call. Shook his hand, we had a deal. I said, I'm not gonna leave until you, we find somebody that can step in that dealership that can continue them in night, in the, in the year we took over in the 1980s, Mr. Robinson from 84 to 92 had sold one new combine. The last year in business, they had $897,000 worth of sales in parts and service in 94. When I left, I take a lot of pride in it. When I left there in uh, December of 99, yeah, December of 99, uh, we had 14 million in sales. I grew the business, selling lots of combines, opened up the market area. And I, what I was going back to when Dan said, I want you to, uh, I, I didn't want to see the business step backwards. So we found the right person. I exited and I started farming full time and I hadn't looked back since. Every New Year's Day, I know he had it on his calendar at 1.30 to 2 o'clock, he'd give me a call and ask, was I bored yet? And I, every year I'd tell him. And then I think it was in, oh, about 2000, two or three years later, uh, he died in a plane crash and he was flew helicopters, planes, and crashed about 30 foot before runway. And I guess the greatest attribute you can say to Dan Hudson II is the business was stronger, just as stronger, stronger without him, probably stronger without him than it was with him in his daily operation because he built something and he trusted people. And he get, I swear, between him and Bobby Boggess and Joe Robinson, they give me the tools to a PhD of, Dan give me the PhD in business, the opportunity to get a PhD in business through hard work and just trials and uh, mistakes and then uh, Mr. Robinson did on the mechanic side of it. So between those two, uh, Dan probably taught me when you pick pick the people, bet on people. You can't do everything yourself. You got to bet on people, and that's where uh, Dan Hudson has still left a legacy today from people. And today, I think they've got forty seven stores. So it's you know what he started was more powerful with his thought process and his legacy that he laid out. Tremendous. If you, you ought to look at what he's done over his lifetime career. And that's where it started out. I planted my first crop in the, the fall of 93, a wheat crop. And here today's the in probably 21 days from today, I'm going to start, I'll plant my 30th wheat crop. So I mean, I mean uh, Joe, how many acres did you start off with? What'd you start farming? Oh, I started doing custom work. I bought a 7720 and I, I was, somebody, I had an old 5020 tractor and somebody would have a tractor go down, they'd be in a bind. I'd rent them a tractor. 
or if I'd done something on a piece of equipment and it, and it didn't, it broke down because of something I did wrong, I'd give it to them. I, I learned from the Robinsons, your word is your word and pe when people depend on you. So it, that started out as, as doing custom work. And then all of a sudden I rented a hundred acres and then I started doing a 500 acre farm on crop share where I'd done the guys a custom work the previous year before and it just led to that and led to that. But what really catapulted the operation, I, I probably only bid on three farms in my lifetime. And I think two of them I didn't get, but as these farms retired, they would pull up to my shop and say, get in, let's take a ride. And that's happened numerous times to where these farmers, they knew my values as a mechanic and I got them out of a bind. So, and they knew I looked after their machinery and they knew your standards. You know, they, they watched how I kept my toolbox, how you kept your truck. Um, and I learned from that. I could all, I swear I can always be in the dealership. If I didn't know a guy, he'd come in wanting trade equipment. I could look out my window or get up and go to the restroom and look at his truck. I could tell you how he took care of his equipment. If he didn't, if he's not going to take care of something that gets him around every day, he's not going to take care of something that pays the bills. So that's just, uh, that's how it started. You know, for retired farmers, ret uh, part-time farmers, mailmen, doctors, uh, everybody's perfect except for the lawyers. Yeah, no, you're right. Hey, Jordan, is that, uh, that Jordan, does that lesson sound familiar? Keep your truck, how you keep your stuff? Yeah. Well, you just, the, I, I've enjoyed working with everybody over the years. The only ones I've ever had trouble with is somebody in the legal profession. They just, you just got to learn. You got to learn what they're looking for and try to meet that demand. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, Joe, I always told the kids, you know, uh, similar story for us. I mean, we came from nothing and, uh, you know, be honest people, uh, you know, it, I think that that goes a long, long ways, uh, treating people how you'd want to be treated. And I used to tell Jordan, we had interview, final interview some people in uh, Chicago at times. And you'd get in, you know, you'd say, you'd trick them like, hey, yeah, uh, we're going to go to lunch somewhere. And then you get out there and be like, oh, hey, my car's at this other lot. You drive. And uh, we'd make the, these kids drive. And then we could see their car. You know, we could see we didn't care about the car, the make or the model. We just wanted to see what it was like inside, gotcha. how they kept their stuff. same principle. And it's like, man, I'm telling you what, you could see, you know, it's just, I'm with you. I mean, if they're not, it's, you know, I just think it's not a part-time thing. It's what uh, we've always right. done, you know, doing the right thing, stepping over work that could be done. You know, if, if, it, if there's work to be done and the car needs to be clean and yeah, you, know, you need to be clean the inside, take the trash out. Do the, I mean, you'd be amazed at all the, you know, like you said, just crazy things you see. So it, it's, yeah, it's basically, Basically goes back to it's what you're doing when nobody's and that and that gave me the catapult and I didn't realize it but when I give when people ask me for advice today you know younger people you know it's what you do when nobody's looking. You don't guys take care of that equipment and I didn't realize I was building a reputation for what they might do in the future and. And that's grown it. That's been able to grow it to me. I'm, I've gotten to a place that I never even could possibly attempt to dream of as a little kid. No, no, I agree with you. Same here on our end. I, I think it's, it's, it's similar. And that's, that's why we're excited to hear people's stories. I mean, it's, it's like it's, it's, you sit back as a kid, have enough money to, Pay you put a little gas in the car and take your girl out to, uh, you know, grab a little ice cream or something. But yeah. And then things just, just keep snowballing as you do better and better and more things for people. I think, you know, and that's just always been one of our, th your theory sounds similar. I always tell the kids and I, people probably tired of hearing it, you know, a coach asked me, how do you, how do you build the tallest building in town? And he said, you know, there's two ways and you can go around tear everybody else's building down and yours is a little taller you know, you can go around and help everyone else build their buildings. And then in return, they help you build yours. And that sounds like exactly what you did with starting with the repair and, you know, going above and beyond for people. And then in return, they've, 
come to you when their farms come up or when they're looking to rent or just doors open up. So that's pretty awesome for sure. So how many, what are you guys farming now? Uh, this year we've got about 10,000 acres of corn, about 14,000 acres of soybean and we had soybeans and we had probably a thousand acres of cereal rye. 8,200 acres of wheat and probably about 500 acres of barley. Oh, wow. Man. And then 100 acres of dark fire tobacco. How's the tobacco? I've, I've got a couple. A, it, yeah. Tobacco loves a drought year when you can give it just the water it wants. It, that dark tobacco, see, all of our tobacco goes towards your, towards your dipping tobaccos, your skulls, Copenhagen's. And, and that, that aspect of it has been growing when somebody usually stops smoking, which is burly tobacco. 50% of them will pick up a can. And when you see anybody that's got that round circle in their pocket, that, yeah, you know. they, that's our product. I mean, for, it's a 50 mile area here, a 50 mile radius of uh, between Nashville, Tennessee and Paducah, Kentucky. That, that's where all that's grown in the world. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was right there in that concentration. Yes, area. yes. And it's, it's, it's hard to get into from the outside because it takes a history of doing it and companies, uh, contracts. We, we just raised the U.S. tobacco and a Swisher tobacco. That's all we raise for. Oh, well, perfect. So. But it takes a skill. It's sort of, it's a specialized skill. Uh, and and it, it infrastructure and uh, it's required to do it. There, there's some art involved. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the art is how, it, art's how you grow it because if you've got good people that's looking after it, then you can, uh, they're betting on the crop, not, I mean, not everybody can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we will background about 15,000 head of calves a year. And uh, biggest majority of them were in a partnership or in an alliance with Freona Industries there in Freona, Texas, Amarillo. Then that's where most of our background in calves go. We'll buy them at 450 to 470, keep them 80, 85 days, 90 days, put 230 pounds on them, uh, get them straightened out, ready to roll. And we'll send them to Freona, uh, Amarillo, Dalhart, some of their feed yards. Oh, well. What are some of the other businesses you got in the hopper? You sound like us. You got you got your hand in a little bit of everything. Huh? 2019, late, tw early 20, we started the erosion. We started an erosion control business uh, where you're making the blankets that you see all, all along the interstates, highways, constructions, uh, made out of straw with a netting where you keep the, to get a standard grass started and a good waterway started. Uh, we're totally vertically integrated in it. We ordered a machine from Twistinger, Germany. There's two countries in the world that make those machines. That's all the that's all that makes them. They happen to be from the same town across from the street of each other and happen to be two brothers that didn't see eye to eye several a generation ago. That that's the companies that only only companies in the world to make them. So during COVID and through all of that is when you know, if you want to, if you want to do something, be successful in something, find out what I'm doing and do right to opposite. <laughs> it's just, I've, I've never had an easy path. I've always, it's just always been hurdles to overcome. Like when I bought the machine and, and made a down payment and all of a sudden COVID hit, well, it delayed stuff. Then the technicians couldn't come install the machine. And finally, after a year in January of 21, I finally got the machine. I got it in and uh, late November, Christmas, I put it together myself by pictures because they couldn't get the uh, technicians here. So I had to write a letter to the embassy in uh, Germany, basically begging them to allow the technicians to come over on an emergency visa status. Sure enough, I got a letter back and they said yes. So I had it all put together except for the wiring. And after working with the Germans for about five to seven days, putting it together, there's not a doubt in my mind why we fought a world war. <laughs> not a doubt, but uh, that's been a relationship that's been extremely valuable with contacts throughout the other side of the world because through COVID and then when uh, Russia attacked Ukraine, uh, it, it allowed me contacts to understand 24 hours in advance or 48 hours in advance what was going on before the world really knew it. And you would think with the internet, you'd know it as quick, but you know, you deal on information. Yeah. The guy that gets information is guys can capitalize and use it. Yeah. So, uh, and we've started in January of 21. 
built that business out. It's really growing. We're at two shifts. Uh, we, we supply our own straw, do, do a lot of our own shipping of freight. Cause as you know, this summer you couldn't get stuff delivered because trucks, well, they give us a cap, they give us a, a huge capital advantage to where we can cut out the middlemen and go straight to people. If they need something, we run it like we run our farming operation. You know, if, if you're in a bind, you need it. We'll, we'll, we'll maneuver it around, work a few extra hours to get, you don't have to go through bureaucracy of three, three layers of management. And it's, it's been, it's, it's been rewarding. And it's, it's just diversified a little bit. Yeah, where else are you selling your crops to? I think you said uh, before we got on the podcast, you're selling your corn to ethanol plant. Well, it's a place that uh, a green, I think it's green resource in uh, O'Brien County, Tennessee, large ethanol plant. You know, it's West Tennessee's been hit with a drought. Uh, Western Kentucky's been hit with a massive drought. Uh, we started shelling corn. Normally, our local elevator ethanol plant here that all they have is rail facilities. Uh, normally they will, they will get into that 35 to 75 up to a dollar over for late August, first week of September this year, it didn't come. So we, we had hedges on and we had to roll those to March and the ethanol plant in Obine County, we was able to uh, sign a contract with them, 220, 250,000 bushels at a dollar or positive basis. So we're going 111 miles places we've never been started last Monday and I think we've got 120,000 delivered as of late yesterday. So we're making headway and trying to harvest, uh, end up cutting two years worth of silage in one because of the drought. We ended up cutting over a thousand acres. Uh, it's just every, every path you come to trying to make uh, lemonade out of lemons. So you name it, we try it. Yeah. Naive enough just to, uh, like for example, you know, I was talking about the connections with the people in Europe and Germany. Got, I was on a phone call with them that morning. The war started at four o'clock. Trying to understand what was going on. And these are they, these were a couple of guys that are very, very knowledgeable in the world markets, understand what's going on in a, from a different point of view. And we had gotten we had formed a good relationship where I knew I could trust them. Well, they told me what they thought was going to happen if it went this way, if it went that way. And I just made a decision that night. I've got a very good uh, relationship with Nutrien. And by six o'clock that night, uh, we had secured and purchased 100% of our fertilized needs for 2023. Locked them in because my concern was I couldn't go through this past summer not knowing what the input costs are. How do you, how, how do you price grain year out when you're going through something that's never happened in our lifetime. So having the, having the fertility side covered and we can hold probably 130,000 gallons of fuel in physical capacity. So I had my biggest inputs covered for the, for the coming year. And that afforded luxury of uh, being able to price some grain at some good prices because you knew you wasn't uh, standing out there where you'd be selling for, uh, selling your grain for more than, you know, for less than your cost of production. I'm, I'm with you, Joe. I still don't think we've seen the end of all this. I mean, I think, you know, we ticked back higher, you know, last few weeks in fertilizer prices and now they're shutting down some plants in Europe, several other plants because of the energy crisis that they're going through. And I, you know, I think this fertilizer could still get nuts. I mean, oh, I, th I think we're on the cup of it. I think this, the energy platforms and the fertilizer platforms, you talk to the people in Russia and really have a, I was on a Zoom call with them 10 days ago. I mean, these people are breaking middle-class people with their energy cost and their heating cost. Yeah. They're, I mean, you, you see it on the news, but you don't get a good, when you, when you talk to a guy that's got 200 people working in a factory and he knows he's got a good grasp of what's going on. And he says, it's, he's, his feel was people are starting to get, being hurt so bad. They're switching they're wanting finality in this war. They, yeah. they don't want to keep dragging it on because dragging it on is hurting 50% uh, of the people in the world. Oh yeah. So, so how does that change? I don't know, but I, I'm like you, I do not think, I think we've, I don't, I, my personal opinion is when you see the heat in the corn belt we've had this year, I know what heat does. I studied it all the time, kept the charts. 
you don't raise a crop when you've got above normal heat, even under pivots or anything else. And I think that's what we're seeing. So if you've got high commodity, high corn prices, then all of a sudden the commodity prices, your, 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 you know, your nitrogen, your fertility wise, they're going to follow it or lead it. Yeah, no, I, I agree for sure. I, I think you're just saying it. I think as Russia, you know, cuts down more of that energy supply in the European Union, I, I think, like you said, that middle class is getting smoked. So now it's kind of backing up on them. And like I said, I heard they'd closed, uh, I think maybe two thirds of uh, the ammonia production plants in Europe last week. And, you know, things are just getting tough uh, from a fertilizer perspective. So yeah, I'm, I'm worried as well. So yeah, I think that's important as we move forward. So got to keep our eyes on all that. We've got our, we've got the buildings filled up, getting ready to start spreading. Fortunately, I, I was in a, I was in a position to where uh, in the fall of 21, we had went on and spread a, all of our fertility needs and had our sheds empty to where I can, I can hold. Uh, no, I, I, I can't think of it right offhand. We can hold like 3,100 tons of liquid and then probably in a neighborhood of 2,800 to 3,000 tons of dry fertilizer. Right. So we had had it all spread and we were totally empty. So I had a position to, I had a, I was sitting in a position where I could hold the physical product and everybody's always said, Oh, you can, you can protect yourself on the board. You can do this on the board. You can do that on the board. You can't put the board in a fuel tank. And I learned that in hurricane in the hurricanes, when it hit Katrina hit new Orleans and in that part of the area, when you was having problem getting fuel in 2005 or six, and I learned me a lesson then that's why I had a 10,000 gallon tank. Then today I've got 130,000 gallon tank. That that physical control, and that's the and that's when you get the opportunities. Is is when you can capitalize on it. Yeah. And you know when, when diesel hits sixty cents a gallon in what May of two thousand twenty, all of a sudden we filled up and every and we kept filling up and filling up, riding it as it went back up. And we we had enough. We had one hundred and twenty eight thousand gallons worth of fuel in the tank December thirty first of twenty one. I could have gone all year this year and never bought any diesel, but I, I've been feathering some in when it would drop down 50 cents, I would yeah. feather some in. So uh, I think this next go around of, of 20, 23 is going to create some haves and have nots because there was a lot of stuff bought early in, in 2022 20, crop. Yeah. This one, this one's got its challenges. I, I agree. I think it's the same thing you're going to see in Ukraine. You know, you got all these optimistic uh, talks that, you know, you're getting some, some grain out of Ukraine now, so to speak. But from everyone I talk to and producers, even in Ukraine, the problem is getting the inputs for the next year's crop. I mean, they can't, they're having trouble getting diesel. They're having trouble getting other inputs, fertilizer, uh, different things. They had the inputs uh, for last year's, but this new one's going to be a real pinch. And I, you know, I think that's going to be a real problem. So, well, put yourself in that in that guy's place. If all of a sudden, if all of a sudden in North Dakota or Texas, you got bombs going off from somebody yeah. bombing the U.S. or and they're landing two states over from Kevin Van Trump, or is Kevin Van Trump going to be all that young ho and <laughs> he's not worried about feeding the world? He's worried about getting the hell out of Dodge and feeding himself. I agree with you totally. And just the transportation of the grain and everything, who wants to run hopper truck crop, you know, you don't know if you're going to get a missile. I, I don't know. I think they're overly optimistic. Uh, the market at least as to what's going to come out of Ukraine or Russia. As far as that goes, so. I think it goes back to cut. Like we said, we done it with supply chain with COVID and our equipment and everything else. Yeah. We thought it was a month to six weeks to eight weeks process. We learned real quick, the world, when you have an upset, it's a, it's like a, it's not like a tidal wave. It's slower than that to where we saw it coming out of China. It took us 18 months for it to get here. And it never has cleared itself up yet. So this thing, it, it's, I think we've, we learned anything. It's a wider spectrum from the start to the bubble until the tidal wave washes out at the end. And, and we're seeing that today and it's had to restructure everything. I know we fought hard in trying to manage with our equipment supplies all through uh, late 20 and 21, you know, COVID was over in 20, but all of a sudden in 21s when we, you couldn't get parts in, tw you know, what's 23 going to be? Yeah. 
Well, Jordan, Joe got me all excited there. We started talking to markets and fertilizer. Oh, yeah. I'll get back on track. Get back on track. That would build these damn businesses. I'm sure you got everybody fired up. <laughs> they all like talking about that stuff. I agree. So, so on the on the farming side of things, um, what I, I wanted to ask, what was uh, what was probably like your biggest key to really scaling up the farm to where it is now? Hard work, the trust you had in the community. Uh, the people you had working for you? Um. Hard work's a given. I mean, anybody that's got to work at it, when they get up every day, hard work is a given. Even on your day off, very few hard workers are going to find it to where they can sit around and do nothing. So that's a given. Uh, probably, as I alluded to earlier, is, is Mr. Dan Hudson. Uh, to, if I learned anything from that tremendous five years, of induction into business. And I had never had any business classes. I'd been handwriting out invoices, didn't have a computer, didn't, I didn't have any of that. No, no formal education. Dan, I watched him and Dan bet on people. Before it was a fancy word you would watch and he was very good at betting on people. And I learned that and I took it to, and I put it in my backpack and I never forgot it. I've been, I'm strictly sitting here today because of the people I've aligned myself with through customers, landlords now, uh, partners, people that work here in the operation. I'm, I, I get to do what I truly enjoy doing and really get to pick and choose what I do because I'm surrounding myself with the same thing Dan taught me, the very best people and let them be rewarded for, for their uh, for for their uh, perseverance. Question, Joe. I got a question. Yes, sir. I, and you know, and this has been, I think it's been one of our Achilles heels at a lot of our businesses for a long time. We struggle to get good people. And I often wonder, I tell Jordan, is it that I'm a poor manager or, you know, it's, it's like you said, I mean, I think sometimes I get frustrated and I'll just, I, I'll just do it myself. You know, you get that. I'll just do it myself attitude going because, by the time you spend the time and then people don't show or this and that. So you, you, you start to take on a lot of, I'll just do it myself. But how, how do you guys go about finding really good people? And do you have to, are you paying them more than most? Or are you, what is it that's the key to getting good help, I guess, and keeping them? If you want to know the secret key to it, <laughs> it's in, in 1984, most, and I'm, and I, and I'm sure this is not your, not your reason, but what I see most of the time is most of these operations, because it's very hard to get into today to build a farming operation. Yeah. The capital outlay is so incredible to build a large farming operation where you need lots of employees. If you'll ask the biggest portion of the owners, their sons, their daughters, they have never ever signed the back of a payroll check. When you sign the back of a payroll check, you find humility. And if the guy respects you when he hands it to you, Mr. Robinson used to walk around on Friday after, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, hand you the check and you had to sign a receipt saying you got it. Well, when that man looked you in the eye, you knew every Friday, you'd have to look him in the eye and you give him a week's worth to feel like you earned that check. Yeah. Well, when you, when you take that uh, payroll, that work ethic, in, in the state of Kentucky, when I started, farmers are not required to pay overtime. You can work 80 hours. Well, from my first day forward, when I hired my first employee, I knew what it meant to me. Well, I, I started paying uh, overtime, anything over 40. I mean, that's, that's what I lived for when I was on the other side. You know, Plus, it made me a better manager. If I'm going to have that guy out there extra hours, I've got some skin in the game. <clears throat> Uh, so I think it goes back to that. If you treat people the way you want to be treated, yes, we pay above average. I do lots of bonuses, uh, do whatever I can to assist people in their personal lives. Uh, you name it. I'm just, and we're in an area to where we're starting to get factories in our area now. And then you have to find that guy. not everybody wants to work on a farm. Yeah. But you got to certain people, they don't want to work in a factory. So, and then, and probably one of the biggest keys uh, 
is don't go out and find that well-experienced guy. Find that guy that's got that work ethic and invest in him. Yeah, you're going to invest and you're going to see some of them walk away from you for better opportunities. That's how I got here. But you got to take that in pride when they do. And if you can find two out of 10 that stay with you, all of a sudden you got people that will go to war with you. And that's where it's, uh, you build people up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I love seeing people leave us for better opportunities or to do their own thing. I mean, I think that's awesome. I have a couple of my buddies and they're always like, you know, you got to be the worst hire, you know, like uh, they said, you know, I hired the wrong people or hire the worst people, you know, and, so when we were in Chicago, I, you know, you had to do these psychological tests all the time, all this crazy shit to analyze your thoughts. And, uh, but it came back that I would hire wounded dogs. They said I would hire, you know, I was looking for people that probably were similar to myself, just needing an, you know, somebody that needed an opportunity, they were down on their luck and, you know, and I wouldn't hire the right person for the right position or things like that. And I think that's important, you know, as you've learned and probably in the John Deere with through your John Deere upbringings and everything else, having the guy in the right position or, or, or gal in the right position, you know, and uh, playing the right spot. Just like you said, not everybody wants to work on a farm. Not everybody wants to work in the factory. You got to find the people that, that fit, but it, it's tough. I mean, most, most of all of our uh, producer partners and, folks were partners with the ag business. I, I mean, I think it's, it's one of the number one conversations is how are we going to keep and continue to hire good help to expand and grow. And like I said, I was excited to talk with you because like Jordan said, you got 50 people and you know, you've worked at John Deere, you've worked at some of these bigger places and you're doing now your own and expanding in your own businesses. It's, it's just tough to get people. So I, I commend you on, on you know. Yeah. And, and then again, is don't, yeah, so many times, so many people, and I've been guilty of myself until I learned, uh, had a good example laid out in front of me. Just because you put a person in one position, that might not be their strength. Don't necessarily go to get rid of that person because he can't do that position, because that person's strength might be something else that you need in an operation that he, he doesn't have to re- he or she doesn't have to relearn the culture. You know, everybody doesn't have the same strengths, just like they don't have the same weaknesses. So you 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 find that you you massage it around. You play chess, not checkers. I like what you said there. Getting the culture right is uh, imperative as well, for sure. That's right? it's. And then through, so in 2012, one of the one of the big uh, caveats that's helped this operation quite a bit is uh, myself and another gentleman from uh, Brian Molitor from Molitor Farms in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. I had mentioned it at, at, at uh, Apex. Uh, with TPAP Apex with Danny Kleinfelter through the, you know, that, that, yeah. that, uh, that uh, school, that uh, learning process. But Dan Hudson with the Deer System insisted that us as managers be a part of a peer group. And, and Deer, Deer referenced them as group 20s. You might have 15 dealers throughout the United States that remember and they met two or three times a year to bounce ideas off each other and be and to be held accountable and be evaluated by your peers. Well, that wasn't that didn't happen in agriculture, and I missed it. When your peers making a suggestion to you, you better listen because they've got your best interest. They're wanting to give you the best advice they can. And in 2012, I was able to myself and Brian Molitor, and we was able to put together five or six, seven other operations, larger operations in each state throughout the United States. And today we're still together. Just got back from Cannon Falls in our third t- trip up there. And that is, that is from, from a state planning, how do you manage a family? How do you hire? You've got, you, you got these families in other states that fight the same problems and they've got lots of good advice. I mean, we always come back the day that the day that the peer group be over with is the day that we leave there and don't learn anything. And I don't think that day will ever happen. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that whole front. I think the peer groups are, are wonderful. Jordan and I challenge each other uh, every year to go. We go to a conference or two that isn't in our wheelhouse, you know, something that's outside our wheelhouse just to help us spark ideas and to bring up conversation and thoughts that, then we take the ideas that were being applied there and we, you know, kind of move them over and to make them applicable into our own operation, our own businesses. So we do, we do similar. Plus I like the peer groups as well. So 
you know, I just like to be able to get multiple perspectives. And I think you got to push yourself to do that because on your own operation, Joe, you know, I mean, there's not many people in your own operation that are going to call you out and, and, and tell you you're dead wrong on, so, you know, I mean, it's just I've tough. To get that. A, fortunately, I've got a few. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I love that too. I mean, my, my close family will do that, but you know, most of the, the employees, they just, we do it doesn't. This do is that. not my close family. I've got some guys yeah. that are, that are do it constructively say, no, let's rethink this. What about this? And That's we'll awesome. debate, we will debate a lot of decisions yeah. Sometimes I won't say they win. Sometimes they have the best outcome. Sometimes I will, but it's, it's healthy debate is the best form of ingredients to make the best pie. Yeah. I tell Jordan, you know, when, when I was trading in Chicago, I mean, they would say, you gotta be, you gotta be somewhat out of your mind to think that you're going to walk into every room and your perspective is going to be the best <laughs> one. It's like, come on, man. Like you gotta, you gotta recognize there's gotta be better ways to do things and better ideas. So. Well, yeah. I will applaud. I will applaud you this morning. I woke up and I was for the, the only newsletter I'll read of the morning to be your newsletter. Well, I woke up this morning, saw y'all had your first advertisement for farm farm con in it. Yeah. And all of a sudden I saw in Peter Zion yeah, uh, is going to be the speaker. Yeah, uh, I applaud you. You get a different yeah. view from a different perspective. Yeah, that's what I say. You know, hey, I, I love having the people in that uh, think differently. So, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yep, Jordan. What else you got? Um, how what what was your uh what's your viewpoint on uh like renting ground and owning ground? You you rent most of your ground, don't you? If if I could find a long list, long dead uncle that or a will somewhere that left me, I would own everything, but that's not possible. When you start, you know, I own about 2,800 acres today. Uh, we'll rent 16, 17,000. Uh, it's all on cash rent because at two o'clock in the morning, when we decide to turn left and go and plant something or harvest something, I've got my own reasons for it. I don't want to have to justify it to anybody. Uh, so many times I've seen in the shares or crop shares, uh, if you, I think I've got 48 different landowner, landlords, so I don't need 48 uh, people telling me how to farm. I mean, or why did I not do their farm first? If they're getting their check, I, I've got to manage this operation and my people have to manage this operation for the most structural, you know, the best structured decisions we can make. And that's where, uh, that's why I do the cash rent. That way I've got all the risk on me. If I screw up, it's my, it's my dog, my dog just like managing the silage or crop insurance or whatever. It's, if, if I'm going to spend all the money, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I want to somewhat be, have the ability to navigate in the direction. I think the best profitability and best decision for the operation. Are you doing anything? Joe, are you, doing anything I hate to you doing anything different with your equipment or anything like that? Or you just, you trade every couple of years. You... We've been, uh, since 2011 or 12, we've been trading every year on a multi-unit deal. And uh, up until 14, 15, or 16, we traded like part of the fleet when the dealers were hurting. I work very, very, very close with my with a, with a Hudson organization. Uh, I almost would say I feel like I'm a partner in their operation because if, if it's good for me, it needs to be good for them. If it's good for them and, and they're good about bringing deals to the table, uh, just out of the box, you know, what can we do different? I mean, how can we help each other? And that's been tremendous. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a real, but you got to have people you can trust to where if you step out on a limb, you know, they're not going to cut the limb off. So, uh, we trade combines every year, uh, usually sprayer every two years and tractors about every year. Yeah. We've seen some different operations playing around with those numbers on the equipment side, selling off their equipment, some, going to, you know, rent, lease, you know, on the spot custom. I, I don't, I, I think everyone, it's probably different in every area of the country. So, I mean, it's, it's well, it's, it's going to be whatever makes that dealer comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's resale value and everything else. You know, one thing I'm held on is I'm back in the, the previous run up in 13, 12, 13, I built sheds and built sheds because I, I can't stand for our stuff to be sitting outside, even though we traded every year, it's, it's no difference. When I was a little kid playing out in the backyard and had a 55 two-ton truck hood uh, as my shop, I put my stuff in every night, and that's what we do. I mean, you know, when we're out and harvesting away from the farm, no. But if it's in the off-season, 
you bet it's going to be inside or it better be a reason why it's not. Every, all the sheds are labeled. It's just, it's organized structure all the way through it. Perfect. Perfect. How is the, uh, how's the rest of the family involved in the farm? My uh, oldest daughter works in the office under human resources. Uh, her husband, uh, they've been dating since she was in eighth grade. He joined the operation. They got married in 2012. He takes care of all of the uh, spraying technology. Uh, him and her work together in FSA reporting. Uh, he's taking over all the crop insurance stuff, uh, all the grain drying, uh, allocating the sprayers, chemicals. Uh, then my youngest daughter, she just had a baby about a year ago in February. Yeah, around Valentine's Day. And then she had been looking after the cattle operation, but she's now she's getting ready to have another baby, my first grandson. So I've got I've got three granddaughters and one grandson on the way. So she's backed off doing a lot of the record keeping from her home and working two or three days a week in the operation. Uh, and then her husband is not involved in the operation. Uh, he works in healthcare. And then I've got uh, two stepsons. One just took a position. He is just, they just moved uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. He's an uh, ER doctor in Vanderbilt in the ER department. He uh, went to Stanford uh, worked in Oakland at the Highlands Hospital through his residency, and now he's moved back to Nashville, ER doctor, and then a daughter-in-law that's done several different, uh, started several different uh, companies, schools, uh, Oxford Day Academy, uh, Reach University, and then my uh, youngest stepson, he's in San Francisco working at a uh, biopharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical research firm, then my, they're twins, and my step youngest stepdaughter, uh, she's a RN at uh, Jewish Hospital in Louisville. So they're not involved in the operation. And then my wife is a retired 27, she taught school for 27 years, so she re, she's a retired school teacher. And uh, she does first steps programs where tutoring uh, kids from one to four years old, it, as they see they got some challenges or learning, then she goes in the home spends one hour a week with them and uh, she changes their lives in that direction. Cool. So what's, uh, what's next for you guys? How are you going to start to transition the farm? I, that, that's, everyone, that's, are they going to take it all over? Or? That That's the biggest question I'm working through right now through estate planning and uh, uh, inheritance, trying to manage it, you know, setting up trust to figure out how do I navigate that? You know, you know, when you grow an operation, starting from scratch, it could be, it could be substantial uh, inheritance taxes. And it's a, if there's one thing that keeps me puzzled is how do I, how do I navigate that to where they don't have to start over again? You know, I wouldn't want anybody to go through what I've done to get it to here. No way, no how. It's, it's almost impossible. So I don't want them to be structured with inheritance taxes to where they have to sell off 50% of everything I've worked for my whole life just to be able to continue to do what I started. So I'm working through that right now. If I knew the answer, <laughs> I'd be a genius, but I'm working through that with some, with some very key individuals trying to figure that out today. Are they, uh, are they wanting to take over? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I sat down with them uh, about a week and a half ago when I got back from our uh, peer group meeting in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. And that's where I just asked them, I said, y'all tell me you're in and go. There's no sense me worrying about how to manage this five years out, 10 years out. My grandfather died when he was 56 years old. I'm 56 today. Uh, I always want to have that. Somebody doesn't stop at a stop sign uh, option already figured out before we get there. So uh, yes, they want to continue it. And I've got a, and I've got some tremendous great operations managers and key employees that it's, it's, it's changed. This operation has changed their lives. You know, they've told me, they've looked me in the eye and told me that. So I want this operation. They might, it's no telling what it could look like. It, I built this for family success, but it's not, you don't have to be a biological family before you can feel, feel the success from it. And that takes a, takes a lot of mixture and ingredients. You can't find too many cooks can put that together in a short-term timeframe. So 
I mean, that's probably what drives me. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I think that's one of the big pressing questions is, you know, how do we, you know, leave everything we've worked hard to build to the next and uh, let them continue to build and move the ball a little further down the field. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's tough. And I think that keeps everybody up kind of at night a little bit, you know, trying to figure all that out. Just like Joe said, if we had the answer to that one, we would, <laughs> we, we would, uh, I guess, let everyone know, but. Well, if, if you're like me and every trade you made and every business decision you made through your whole career, when you started out from zero, you've always worried it's going to be your last decision. Yeah. So you don't want all of those decisions that you've structured and ruled out what, so it's not a devastating decision. You don't want your last decision to be the one that destroys your family's opportunity to push it to the next level, as you said. How are you, Joe, with uh, your opinion, taking big risk? You a big risk taker? You're not a big risk? I mean, to get to where you're at, you're obviously a risk taker. How many people would buy $3.5 million worth of fertilizer 16 months out with an unknown? So, yeah, I, I say I take, I take a lot of risk. But I, risk doesn't bother me because I'm very, very comfortable with my ability to evaluate risk and weigh what can go what can go right and what can go wrong. And most of the time I'm focused on what can go wrong because I've got a PhD in life on, on, on what not to do. <laughs> I agree. I hear I find a lot of people when we talk to them, you know, they they really want to be successful. They got the work ethic to be successful, but a lot of them are just risk advert. They're they're not willing to take a lot of risk. And I think it takes a certain person and a certain mindset to to really take the risk that's necessary and needed to, to advance in, 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 in a big way. So it's, it's not everybody can lay their head down at night and know their future depends on the weather. <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough. You know, oh, you're, you're right there. You're right there. I agree. So, and most of the ones that we've seen make it, you know, it, it is. And that I, I want to, I, I feel, I feel when my, my, swing for the fences he's like you're he's like it doesn't hurt very far when you fall out of the basement window you know but as you've built the business up and you have all these people now depending on you and you have all these families depending on you and you have all this you know i i feel like i've become less you know i, I become less of a risk taker than i certainly was when i was younger or less but Interesting to think about as we get well, older. Well, you've got a lot of intellectual experience on what can go wrong to where you can navigate answering that question before you have to find it out. The those are like, uh, we call it, yeah, like injuries and burns around here, broken, but you know, a lot of injuries and burns on doing business deals that went bad. Look good on paper, but ended up being a hell of a learning experience, right? So, Margin experience. <laughs> you have, you've got that for sure. But yeah, I think you got to be willing to take risk. And you've definitely, like you said, it's just, Everything from staying back uh, when your folks were moving to to taking the opportunities when they arose to doing the business with John Deere and the other people and doing your own repair shop and a lot of scary things, uh, but you took the risk and you dove in and out, outworked it and uh, did the right thing for folks. So, yeah, uh, I, I agree. Where the business has got to today, as I alluded to earlier, I've never, never in a million years or any fathom when I dreamed that you could start out under a shade tree and end up um, where I'm at today and, and doing what we're doing, changing people's lives. Yeah, that's awesome. For sure. Great, great story. So Jordan, what else you got? I think that's all I had on my end. So I think we're about an hour in. So yeah, yeah we're at our time. Well, I feel yeah. like I've wasted a lot of your time, but it's not as hell. No, not at all. No, I've, I've written some, I've even written some notes down myself and, like I said, I always learn from everyone. I, I love learning from people who are doers and make things happen. So, like you said, that's best life. <laughs> you <bet you>. so, <laughs> getting skinned up, failing, getting back up and dusting off and do it again. So, if, that's really what we're all working for. If you don't have generational equity, you better have hard work and, and uh, lack of fear because it, nobody's going to hand it to you. I like that generational equity. That, that's so many farms have generational equity. I mean, it's a balance sheet. Right. If you don't believe right. it, no, you you're know. right. And that's everyone says, how do you start as a young kid if your folks don't have any money or no? I mean, 
you're definitely, it's a tough road ahead, but I, I think people, I think you can do it. I mean, you're worse than you Yeah. That's what I, <laughs> you just back to where you started. I mean, hell, that's the worst things in life, right? Yes. Yeah. If you don't believe it, walk in any uh, hospital or intensive care or long-term care. And I agree. You can find a way to be blessed any day, no matter what problem you're dealing with, because there's always somebody's having a worse day than you're having. I tell the kids the same thing. I when they'd whine or whimper around the house, having to do chores, having to do the, I said, you, you get in the truck, I'll take you down to the hospital and show you some people having a lot worse day than you're having. So you betcha. It's fine. So yeah, lots of great lessons. So a lot of similarities in, in the families too. So I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for your time. And hey, I wish you guys all the best. If there's anything we can ever do, let us know. Oh, your, your information you pass on every morning in that smorgasbord, it's the Wall Street Journal of Agriculture. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I'll see you at FarmCon now. Yes, sir. You bet. Thank you. See ya. All righty. Thanks. See you, Jordan. See you, Jordan. Been yeah. a good talking with you. Thank yeah. you. All right. Bye. Bye.